what's up, you guys? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Welcome to chaos. You've 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 totally distorted our conversation, Raven. Just your your beautiful presence has has warped our symbolism. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can feel the dimensions shifting. There you go. Yeah, so there's a woman in the room we, now. We just no, we just we just hopped on. We just hopped on. Yeah, yeah we just saying that Daniel goes to me about five minutes ago. So what are we talking about? And I was like, I ain't got a fucking clue, man. Yeah, I was wondering that myself. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) But I I, I think this links, I liked what Dubin said about confusion to chaos. Yeah. Chaos is a chaos. It's not, it's not like we transform chaos into order. You know, like we, we remain chaotic somehow. Like, I, like, I, like I, the, I like the notion of chaotic. Chaotic. Like yeah. order kind of arising from the chaos, but also being... T- it's it's, it's, it's like... It. Chaotic is the word for the dancing star itself. Mm. Already fulfilled. Already dead. After it has fulfilled itself. And dancing in patterns unlike anything you could know. So Barda, today he mentioned something very interesting in one of the threads, which was that enjoy the split while it exists. Don't try to become one between mind and body or the different parts of yourself. Just, just, it is like, you'll be that when you die. Enjoy the split while it lasts. And like holding that tension, the lack of unity. Yeah. Lack is so prominent in our conversations recently, Kadel. I I agree completely. Yeah. even linear time as the lack of future, futurelessness, which is something super present today when the future has already become so realized, right? Say more on that linear time as lack of what? As lack of future. Uh, it's oriented towards not the return, but it's a projection. It's, it's an erection. It's an edification flowing forwards through time. And it's kind of a lack of that fulfillment, lack of a future that, you know, that, that there, there's a movement towards, there's only momentum as far as, as soon as there's a lack. That might be something. But what were you hey. reading earlier? You know, you sent me that piece on Nick Land on hyperstition. Oh, like shit, yeah. These kind of virtual objects from the future that create their reality by virtue of the psychic and behavioral investment that comes in them. So I, uh, what would be an example of one? Something that only comes into being because, I mean, you could think of a project as an idea. It's like next year on the 6th of June, we're going to have an event and the event doesn't exist until we make it happen with our behaviors. But that's a very simple example. You can have far more wacky creations. I think technology is itself, the flow of capitalism itself is, is hyperstitional in that it keeps telling the story of its own demise or its own movement or its own destruction. Um, I, always, I, I always think there's a paradox in the, in the, in the word late capitalism. Mm-hmm. Like people, people saying late capitalism as, as if, as if it's, as if they have any sense of the, the actual end of capitalism. It's, it's, it's a, it's a huge, it's a huge assumption. Like, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it seems, it seems like, it seems like capital is, is more, 
you know, in some, in some way dominant than ever. Well, I have a question about this because like, I feel like Bard talks a lot about attentionalism and, you know, kind of the way that the economy shifts once we're all mediated through digital communication. And, you know, there's a kind of weird weirdness around the world capitalism you know, it arose with industrialization. You know, there's a lot of uh, associations with capitalism, with like factories and factory workers and bureaucracies, a kind of Napoleonic way of organizing labor and, and people. And uh, if that's the essence of what capitalism is, and I'm not saying that that is, but like, if that's what it is, then it almost feels like we're not in that world anymore. Like the factories are vacant, you know, that way of organizing and structuring people has died. And it's now like this, this thing has actually kind of lifted up into this new medium of, of economic and like social transference. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know whether or not we should still call that capitalism, but what that points to me is that there's something there's something else like more essential. Like it's almost like through this leap that we can actually see more of what the essence of this, this thing Mm -hmm. capitalism is. It's not the factories. It's not the workers. It's something, something else. Um, And so I've been working on that kind of question in my head, like what is, yeah. What are people thinking about what capitalism in this context? Well, uh, let let me just, I'll let you figure, but to me, it's like it to, to use, I think almost McLuhan, sense is like it's it's what you're describing raven and how capital was originally decided described was in was in the industrial age economy and now it's an information age economy so there's this transition from the industrial to the informational which can capital survive that transition or is it going to like or is there a contradiction in the transition from the industrial to the informational that erodes capital from within let me pull back and let me, let me pull a, you know, a zoom out at this early stage of the conversation. So Raven, I remember last time we were talking, like you said something about machinic replication, or I think that's the way you pronounce it, or rather the replication of ideas and the technology. And a lot of what you speak about in terms of the biological nestedness of intelligence itself reminded me, especially as you mentioned this now, of the following. So uh, Manuel Delanda, he speaks about um, the machinic phylum. He says, and this is the classic example, that <clears throat> there's only so many things you can do with steel because the morphogenetic potential of steel only allows you to bend it in so and so ways. And as someone you know, decides to bend steel in a way that makes a tube and adds gunpowder, all of a sudden they change warfare. And so I would argue that this long phylum of biology sometimes also crosses and cross-references with the idea of the long phylum of intelligence, of the processes and intelligence of humans. And hyperstition is a technologically, let me get to hyperstition in a bit, forget I said that. So I was talking about the phylum of steel. The phylum of steel traverses to the phylum of capital and you know, from industrialization today, it came to attentionalism. So it's kind of the same lineage, right? It's the same intelligence going through different technological paradigms, different technological singularities mediated by, for example, media technology paradigms. 
And this is intelligence unfolding, right? And it comes to us today as attention and attentionalism. And right now what you see is nothing but capital fucking wrecking havoc all over the fields of attention and of perception and of that sign, rendering it political. And uh, to go back to Nick Lenn now, you could say that this is the autonomous acceleration of intelligence itself and hyperstition being that idea that it's a superstition rendered hyper. It's a superstition that you plug into the socket. Uh, and so you could even say it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy as it circles up through history, which again, I want to, you know, I don't know if I'm being a Hegelian essentialist here, but I want to tie back to that sort of biological golden string that you mentioned, Riven, that struck me so much that stretches from us as living beings all the way to the beginning of the Big Bang. Kadawa, are you going to jump in with about the capitalism thing? You jump in. Okay, because the thing is, though, okay, so I that's kind of how I've been conceiving of capitalism. I guess I'm wondering about like the term itself. Is is that is is it is it capital per se that this thing really is, or um, is it is it something else? Like, is it better to say like informationalism? I guess the term doesn't matter all that much, except for what it connotates. Um, and there's a lot it's of the phenomenon that it's pointing to. Yeah, exactly. Like, what is this pointing to now, especially because we've had this break? And of course, like, you know, uh, I, I think Heidegger does a really good job of just like showing that, you know, when the, when the when the tool breaks or when the thing shifts or when the background changes, McLuhan speaks about this as well. When the medium shift, suddenly you can look back and see how this other medium was operating on society uh, because of this difference between these two worlds. And it seems like there's there's a lot that can be um, looked at in terms of like the difference between capitalism in an industrial society and and capitalism within a digital society. Um, and is it still? Do we still know what we mean when we say capitalism? Which is, I don't know, because it's a big it's a big statement to say like late stage capitalism or capitalism. It's like it is kind of like this godlike. Uh, like imminent figure demon force uh, that has all of these kind of connotations attached to it. And I think there's something to me that the purity of saying intelligence seems to kind of um, speak to that lineage. But at the same time, I don't know that it, it really encompasses all of the dynamics of, of what we're actually kind of trying to point to when we say safe stage capitalism. The <laughs> smart guy today on the IDW. I'll, I'll be very quick. Just people are structured. That's how I'm conceiving of it. Like, we have feudalism. I believe it comes from the word foidus, which I think means field. Right. And the point is that at that time, the majority of relations between people and between the power elite and their subjects is to do with the land and the production of food and crop predominantly. And then we move into capitalism, new power elite who exert their their influence over the others through the use of capital, this new resource that can be used to buy and create abundance. And also it means that the lives of everybody else, of the peasants, they're transformed into workers and proletariats, et cetera. If we're at a point where now there is a new medium via which this intelligence, if you will, manifests and controls, influences the relationships between people, then it would be meaningful to talk of this new, this new social phenomenon this new paradigm if you will uh, but i guess it's kind of important just like 
in the shift to capitalism, food and fields didn't go away. We just industrialized the fuck out of them and turned them into factory farms. Similarly, capital doesn't just disappear. It remains. But I wonder if there's a way in which the function of capital itself will be subject to the same thing that happened to the field and the farming process in the old paradigm shift. Something like in like <laughs> like factory farming capital, which is kind of quantitative easing in a sense, right? You just pull a bunch of money out of nowhere and plug it into the system. And supposedly we can't do that forever because it inflates things and crashes them. But if you inflate and inflate and inflate, and then we fling cryptocurrencies into the mix, my economic literacy is not high enough to know what the fuck happens here. But I think this is a very interesting kind of convergence point. I want to read something very quick that Cadell posted today on the IDW and connected with this. So you mentioned Cadell. In a way, the entire Hegel is there in a nutshell. There's no materialism without exposing this, espousing this paradox. Otherwise, matter becomes just another name <clears throat> for tradition substantially. Here's the key sentence. So the question is not which comes first, but how to think of their rift and hence their articulation. Now, this was about um, the original being and the lack of an original being and how this plays out into this maybe historical dialectic. Now, isn't capital the articulation of unfulfilled desire? If you ask any proper marketer, they will say that the key to good marketing is to invent this desire in the other person, i.e. to invent this lack. So in that sense, currency is kind of a symbolic articulation of that desire. It's the alchemical production of that desire. If I give you $1,000, you instantly start thinking about what you will do with it. So it start, the ideas invoked in you already Always already, it fucks with your libidinal machine already. So I just wanted to drop that in. Yeah, I mean, I think that, <clears throat> I mean, to to go on sort of like what all, what, what, what you're all saying is I think, to Raven's point, I think there is this fundamental transition that we have to ask ourselves about the, how capital is expressed in the industrial and the digital. And when 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 Mark when Marx is formulating his theory of capitalism, he actually has a, a, a lesser known paper where he predicts that when when we enter an information age society, capital would naturally collapse in on its own contradictions. So, like he has the idea that if we had machines and we could automate everything, that there would no longer be the need for the proletariat and the bourgeoisie because. If you had machines that could automate everything, then no one needs to own the machines and no one needs to do the manual labor. So the distinction between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie disintegrates. So like, for example, if you look at, for example, the Amazon factory, or if you think about Uber or automated car network, like if you have Amazon factory and you have an automated car network as just two examples, fully matured then you don't have factory workers and manual laborers. You don't have drivers. You don't have all, all those, all those essential workers. And you, and unless you have a small number of elites that own everything like a Jeff Bezos, then you don't really need the owners of that capital either. So, so you could have a commons, basically the idea that if we had automated factories and automated networks of cars, no one has to own them. It, it could be commons. So like that's, but that's a political, how does that, how does that 
A machinic commons, exactly. How do I, I like the notion of in in I have a paper in my thesis where I call it automated commons and collaborative commons. So, for example, a collaborative commons would be like the difference between a ho the difference between a hotel, Airbnb, and couchsurfing. So, hotel is purely capital. Airbnb is a capital sharing economy mix, and then. Couchsurfing is purely sharing economy, but then the problem with couchsurfing is that you have to deal with the vicissitudes of personal conflict and 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 there's a whole bunch of weird social dynamics you have to deal with, especially sexual dynamics. By the way, when you think about couchsurfing, so the, the basic thing is the problem with the emergent and like I want to I want to presence the zero marginal cost society by Jeremy Rifkin. Because that's a great book on the on the dialectical demise of capital to transform into a sharing economy, where the sharing economy is mediated by attention and and meaningful social relations. Um, but how? And his argument is that the sharing economy will just make up more and more and more and more of the economy to the point where capital is some marginal activity. And that that could only happen through our own looped self transformations as subjects, because it takes a certain kind of subject to have an attention economy and a sharing economy over a capitalist economy. Because if your capitalist subjects still getting pulled around by these desires, which are manufactured by the by the bourgeoisie essentially, or the owners of production, then you don't have the attention. You're not fully conscious enough. You don't have the attention to really give yourself to the sharing economy. You're, you're still, you're more interested in the Nike shoe than you are in giving yourself authentically to a sharing economy. But isn't that precisely the point about attentionalism? That it's not only about overcoming the mercantilization of goods, and it's not only about overcoming the mercantilization or commodification of images. But it's really about the commodification of the not even of desire, but of humans ready to desire, of human being. You are rendered a cog in the overall machine. So this, this so I'm fully with you. I, I just kind of make it. I would make a distinction between, you know, it is as if you are talking about the old capitalism as the suppressive thing, and now the sharing economy is really nice. Except I would say that within the sharing economy, there's a no wait. Hmm. Look, just say, I would highlight, I would like, for example, with couch surfing, no, all of this is problems. Sharing economy is not utopia. Sharing economy is intensification of social anxiety and problematics between how we relate to each other. It's going to be hugely problematic and you can't get rid of desire. You could just get rid of the the way desire is commodified in capitalism. And then we would have to deal with the real of desire in our social lives. Well, it makes me think of a shift from a traditional monogamous dating to polygamous dating, right? Like in the same way that a sharing economy, everything is shared and sexual partners could all be shared. Whereas where we've got it at the moment, you want a car, you go get a car and then only you use your car. Same thing with a girlfriend. And like we've spoken about in sex conversations, ramping up the intensity of, um, <laughs> of everybody's dating life when they're sharing everything, that can lead to serious envy, right? Like to bring out my inner Thomas Hamelrick here, who's always banging on about Gerard, and I think reasonably so, right? Fucking getting rid of the the dynamics where people mimic each other and this end up ending envying each other and wanting to kill each other is one of the fundamental tasks of society. And 
capitalism is a way of regulating the the mimicking envy drive. I think actually Peter Thiel, who is one of was one of Rene Girard's students, right? Peter Thiel of PayPal and um, those Palantir. other things that come back. Invest exactly. in Palantir. Take my advice. His point is he thinks that capitalism needs growth because growth is what always supplies new ideas so that people don't get new desires rather, so people don't get caught mimicking each other. It's like your neighbor might have the flashy car, but there's something new for you to desire. And there's the opportunity for you to get a new career and grow. Whereas if capitalism stagnates, there's no longer the pool of expanding desires. People end up fighting for the same things. Apocalypse. I think it gets self-recursive and it accumulates. And to your point, it's like the desire to become an influencer. You desire the role of being the desire purveyor. Um, and what this speaks to me is kind of this progress of intelligence through exchange paradigms, through economy paradigms, which are obviously cemented in media technologies. So it's kind of this progress of intelligence through the, you know, East India Company stage of capitalism, going through industrial capitalism, going through the second age of the machine, going through digital informationalist capitalism, all of these these paradigms invent their own subjects. <clears throat> and to your point, Cadell, it reminded me of that old um, anecdote by Zizek. It's, it's worse to have a boss that is your friend rather than a boss who is an asshole because at least yes. you know who the asshole is, but a boss who's your friend who's trying to influence you, you don't know from how many sides you are already engulfed, which brings me to the topic of defeat as, as something that inevitably happens after we've accelerated to this point. And maybe even... To throw it to you, Raven, not only defeat in the capitalist sense, but maybe being defeated from the species sense. We are being subsumed. There's some sort of phylogenesis happening, some split happening. And and where will we remain, right? Within this thread, within sort of the, the, the overall flow. That's That's what I would throw to you. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot from the perspective of defeat, uh, because within the context of being heavily atomized, it's a, I mean, it's as if we are radically defeated. We are radically separate from one another. And um, I, I tend to I tend to think in a way that perceives the individual as a kind of illusion. And really the the individual is an emergent property of, of the group within the human species. We expect to have contact with other human beings. And you can look at experiments or uh, case studies um, of children who are deprived of certain types of sensory contact or, or socialization, and they are not human when they become adults. And that's just kind of a literal example of something that I think that is becoming more obvious as we look at people's behavior, both between each other in in like meat space, but also online, this like this drive, the desire for the sense of belonging to belong as being like this kind of core force that magnetizes people to, to one another. So there's the mimesis in the sense of like, I want that thing and this other person has this thing. But what about the fact that by both wanting the same thing, you kind of foster a sense of belonging in some sense. There's a way in which you are in the same world because you want the same thing. So there is tension in that desire for communion 
um, when it's when it's projected towards these kinds of desirable objects or attainable objects or the illusion of an attainable object, which is maybe where sex is such a difficult issue because there's this idea that you could actually attain the object of your desire. Whereas when you're thinking about God, you know, you can't attain God. And so if you place that as your as your kind of core uh, object of communion, you can maybe avoid some of the issues of everybody thinking about feminine as being that which is attainable. So communion and and belonging is is um, maybe more stable within an actual vital religious tradition with a powerful God. But that's, that's going back to the idea of being defeated. It's like, well, <laughs> do we have any of those things? Like, do we have communion? Do we have God? Do we have uh, the capacity to like move through the changes of this time. I mean, I, I think that we do. And that's why the return to the body or the sense of the body or the sense of the biological is very curious to me because we've gotten through so many bottlenecks before. This is, I mean, it's filters upon filters, upon filters, upon filters, upon filters uh, that life has moved through. And so I think that there's a sense of which our, our bodies already know how to get into the future and it's our minds that are in the way. <laughs> um, so I don't know, that's kind of why like sex and other types of like embodiment ideas and practices have been interesting to me. Um, and because they also relate to communion, they relate to the unity of difference um, and kind of trying to work through these ideas of desire and of, of love. I think on this notion that our bodies already know the way and our mind need to get out of the way, the crucial thing for me to focus on is the first step. You have to emotionally understand that reason is limited. Like just through your mental reason, you're not going to be able to abstract the whole, like, like, I mean, communism, it's abstraction of the whole of the whole world communing. And the, the result is a catastrophe because you're, because you, you don't reason, you don't know reason is limited, but that the, but here's the other, the next move is because reason is limited, that's also its power. So if you know reason is limited, then you can bring reason to the contradictions of your moment. And then by bringing reason to the contradictions of your moment and staying in touch with that, you could actually commune possibly. But you can't commune, you can't commune with someone who thinks his reason is everything. You could only commune with a group of people who know they're self-limited by reason and that they use their reason for basically bringing it to the site of, bringing it to the site of irrational conflict between bodies because there'll be lots of irrational conflict between bodies. Which is the reason why the word Islam means submission and why it feels like what you're describing is a sort of faith. I wanna make a comment before jumping into the question of how do we commune and how does one commune and create communities and share. Um, it feels like the things around which people commune today are getting global. But to paraphrase Dugan, they're becoming abstract a little bit into what you wrote down into Chato. And so what do we share? 
we share freedom to desire. To desire what? To desire the freedom to desire. Self-recursive. It's, it's the absolute dogma of liberalism, according to Dugan. It is this um, dogmatic liberalism that instantiates freedom to desire anything, that this freedom to choose, everything is optional um, within, within capitalism in its current stage today. And this optionality just brings me to another point. Cues, ontological cues. What, what, what is common between us right now beyond English as a lingua franca? I would say that we all know perhaps key elements of the spectacle. We all commune and are able to share, even if that doesn't lead anywhere from a community point of view, we share the awareness around coronavirus, around Donald Trump, around these key elements uh, on, the, on the spectacle, right? On the broad techno-capitalist spectacle. And what these elements actually are, they are like narrative cues. If you're in a play, you have these cues that remind you of where you are. Whereas if you take away these cues, which remind you that you're actually a techno-capitalist subject that's supposed to buy, that everything's got a price, that you're supposed to like, that you're supposed to influence and to desire things. And if you perhaps hypothetically, theoretically would extricate yourself to another environment in which the rules would be different, that's what cults do. And what happens in cults, different self-contained desiring communities with different desiring networks by means of architecting different ontological cues, right? Having these different narrative cues and thereby achieve this shared communal space wherein um, bodies can be inscribed. And there, yes, the conversation can happen in a conversation around uh, the side of the body and the side of sharing within perhaps the closed community, the Dunbar number, the classical one, because the way that it is today, um, the pervasiveness of capitalism will always consistently reinforce that, that we, we are in there. And, and it feels like the, the, the question of the community is really recuperated always already. I guess there's this, I'm reminded of McLuhan here because there's a sense of like capitalism being really linked with the concept of like the mass Right. So like this, like these mass classes of people um, and what McLuhan points out is that with the new, with, with the electronic man and with electronic media, people are going to retribalize. Um, he also points out that uh, women and black people would resist this like concept of the man, um, you know, because they didn't want to lose their tribal identity, their tribal affiliation. Um, and we're continuing to see that as a kind of revolt, you know, people turning into these smaller, these smaller groups and creating their own kind of ontological environments, definitely creating their own, um, their own narrative cues or ontological cues. Like you said, like, absolutely. Uh, that's like what a mimetic tribe is. And so I guess, I guess this kind of goes back to the capitalism question. Like if capitalism is linked to this like specific kind of, um, way of organizing society and it, it does seem like that way of organizing has been disrupted there really isn't a mass anymore like yes I know about Donald Trump I know about Twitter but like my perspective on Donald Trump my perspective or my view of like Twitter or any of these things is so radically different 
than other people's. And that's why I'm here. That's why we're in communion with one another because you freaks are talking about ontological design. Like what the hell, you know, <laughs> like who else is talking about that shit? Like just you guys. <laughs> but isn't that where it gets deceptive because the medium is the message. Just the fact like Cadell, you, you'll need to enlighten me on this. The, the idea of the master signifier, the idea of money as the philosopher's stone that can transmute everything. The idea that we're all, whether whichever mimetic tribe we live in, the idea that we're all living under sort of this similar ontological frame in which, for example, we buy stuff using money, therefore our perception is kind of financialized. We live in the global, we live, we live enabled by the global market, therefore we will invariably reflect some of its properties. Um, <clears throat> is it, I, I believe that that's where there's a certain deceptiveness to subcultures. And that's why I, that not deceptiveness, but like, it's, it's the tricky bit. It's the tricky bit to close it off. Uh, it is. I mean, no, but I push back because it's like when we moved into capitalism, people still needed to eat and they still had to get food from the land. It's just no longer the prime matter. Similarly, in the subcultural mode, the global village that we're moving into, we still need to buy things to to do more than eat, right? Our desire economy has transcended just eat to survive. But the point is that, especially for us guys and for little pockets of people, we hang out and we're not doing this for money. It would be nice if money was coming from it, but it's like, it's like a small creative collective, but also the creative collective has like, is existentially invested in it. So certainly I experience it as being that. It's not just like having a band to go to to jam. I think there's a real, it's ontological design. It's like actually trying to stake out a piece of <laughs> territory and ideally as eventually some kind of economic territory as well, like an actual way of life, a position, a political position even, not politics as understood as in like parliaments and presidents, but political as in a community of actively engaged historical subjects, not just historical objects to use that language, like people who are actually able to inter interface with history as opposed to just be passively moved by the machines and the, the desires of others. I mean, it's, it's, it's in the end, it's, it's what, what are we reproducing? So to use the technical notion of the master signifier, the master signifier is basically a signifier that points to itself. In other words, it's a self-referential signifier. So like the master who's, who's, who's interested in reproducing his own identity. Like he's not really interested in you. He's reproducing himself. He's interested in you only because you're a vehicle for his master signifier. So for example, Marx said the master signifier in capitalism is the commodity fetish. So for example, the Nike, the Nike symbol. The Nike symbol is a master signifier. It's why are you buying the Nike shoe? Because it's got the Nike swoosh on it. It's a, it's a master signifier. It's a self-referential signifier that is reproducing itself. What's the interesting thing about capital is that in capital, capital is making more capital. This is the difference between this is like, that's what the stock market is. Like it's exchange value of capital. So the distinction Marx used is the distinction between use value and exchange value. Use value is when money is being used for human value. Exchange value is when capital is exchanging for capital's own sake. So for example, if the markets are doing well, it means exchange value is doing well. 
It could be bad for the humans, but the markets are doing well. It could be a devastation for the humans. So, but as long as the exchange, so it's basically like, and people who, people like, for example, Zizek always makes the point that capitalists are not egotists because capitalists are giving their ego in service to the replication of capital. All they do is replicate capital. And what they're doing is actually trying to grow their bank account. So like, what are we doing? We're not doing this for capital. I don't even think we're doing this for attention. I'm not, I mean, I've already had the, like, I've already had the fantasy destroyed of being the center of attention. Like I remember I, when I first did my first YouTube um, video series, uh, animated series, and the first video or something got a hundred thousand views. And I never felt, and I always wanted that like, Oh my God, a hundred thousand views on YouTube. It, I, what, what I realized in that moment was, well, I'm just as lonely as ever. It's like, it doesn't matter if I have a million views. Doesn't matter if I have a million Twitter followers or whatever, I'm still lonely as fuck. <laughs> so, so it's about the community. So if we move from reproducing capital to reproducing, what are we reproducing? <clears throat> I'd put two things. Do you want to go, Raven? I saw, I saw Raven's eyes. So I think Raven wants to go. Please. Well, what are we reproducing? I, I mean, obviously, I was like, well, literally reproducing. Like, that's what we should be doing. Um, I mean, I think that there's like such a way in which subcultures are are like exclusively infantile. Like, people just remain within this like post-adolescent stage, uh, which is just like never seeking to grow up and to do the real work of bringing in the future, which reminded me of this idea of the master signifier because in in sexual personae by camille paglio she talks a lot about the the, the androgen um and how that figure is this kind of master fig signifier it's perfectly self-contained and when this figure shows up in literature it's a sign of a decadence because this figure being glorified is is a sterility it's a self-fertility but it's also sterile it is the ouroboros it is this thing that doesn't need any difference for its completion and that closes the system and within a biological context that's death you know that is lack. Death. Hmm? it's the fulfilled lack the denial of the lack surely there's no tension there's no tension yeah it's just a just a complete entity and that like ruins the future i mean the thing the thing that we need and Adele, i just like i love your um your little like signature on your emails. It's like, we just have to continuously be dying. And that's not only in the sense of identity, but also we have to live, we have to die. Like we are entities, the bodies that we are, the subjects that we are, we need to die so that the future can come. And it's the extension of, of the present into the future and also into the past, because by extending the future, you actually get to continue the past, to continue the view or the presence of the past. We were just all poof gone there would be no sub subjects to even continue on the line of the past so i think that i don't know that's why i was like what are we reproducing well <laughs> death <laughs> maybe death we're, we're reproducing death to bring forth actual real fucking life like actual real life not just like wearing a nike swoosh you know it's interesting. <laughs> but we could but raven we could we could reproduce we could 
like I want to I want to say I want to say that there's some there's something intelligent unconsciously about our withdrawal from reproducing within neoliberal capitalism because you don't want to reproduce within the current frame because we recognize that within this frame this is not the this is not the frame within which we want to reproduce so we have to destroy the frame within which we like we have to create the frame within which we do want to reproduce like and and this and this yeah yeah. and so for this i want to introduce I, i got to the point where i was able to get to my sort of understanding of the death drive as the um the 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 desire to die differently than anyone who ever existed before so death drive as the desire to die differently meaning that i don't want to die the way my father died i don't want to die the way my grandfather died i want to die in a way which i brought something forth new to the world which which can stand which can stand as a new order of being so like so what we've been doing is yes we would be reproducing biologically but we want to reproduce biologically in a different world than the world we're currently existing in. Does that yeah. provide a way to prevent mimetic escalation as well? If nobody, well, people are chasing not the same objects in life, but the same object that is the, or different objects at the end of life. I don't know if I'm being clear here, but this is what I'm trying to formulate now. Like a, a community praxis where everybody is geared towards that question of how can I die the most interesting death? as opposed to say like how can i accumulate the most capital and wealth as a way to to offset mimeticism and rivalry well i think there's two things there in what kadal was saying there's like this what you mentioned was not just anybody's death like that you wanted to die differently but your father or your grandfather so there's a sense of lineage in this in the idea of the difference of death and i think that that's also about the future so uh, the difference of my death from my mother and my grandmother is the bringing forth of the future. It's it's the rupturing of the patterns of history and the creation of a new world. And my daughter hopefully will die differently than I die. And that's kind of the, I mean, that's kind of the, the hope that every parent has, I think, for their child is that their child, mostly you think of it in terms of you hope your child has a better life. But I think thinking of it as your child dies a different death than you die, I think gets much more to the, to the meat of what's actually happening with that shift, that change that happens between generations. That's also very interesting because Thanatos frames being death. There's perhaps two, two concepts that I want to differentiate here. One, revenue mentioned the androgyny, the self-subsumance of the difference. And then Second is the death, which requires someone alive to die it for, to go through the process, right? So there's a difference. And these two seem to be different, right? Death drive can only exist in, in the face of a living subject, whereas the dissolution of difference is something else entirely. And it seems that what does technology do? It makes life easier. It destroys lacks. That's what capitalism does. Oh, if I lack something, I'll buy it so that I'll be all right for a little bit, and then you lack something again. I want to postulate the idea that capitalism and technology have this, pro- have this property perhaps of de- destroying lack, destroying lack, destroying lack, destroying future, even in the words of Nick Lant. And 
what it might eventually lead to is what either Dugin or Surkov speak about, which is we'll get to a point where we will no longer be able to differentiate between life and death. Because you can even imagine that AI and technology are going to be just so are going to become so ontologically geared and literally ontological design will be recuperated and there will be people striking at the core of your design as a political, as an economic act. And thereby, uh, your very core will be commodified as well in the fifth stage of, of capitalism. There's no doubt about that. And what that will imply is kind of this dissolution between death and life itself, kind of this, this not so much the death that the living will die heroically, perhaps different than the ones who came before and all that, which is which is very worthwhile and actually the keystone of the subject and his arc, but rather something else entirely, the end of being or man as we know it, precisely because it's the end of death as we know it. I don't know if I'm making myself clear though. There was something, someone discussing this on the comments of our Dugan video um, and how, you know, the disappearance of death uh, might have an impact on being itself. I'll see if I can find the comment. It's it's a very small one. And you mean like immortality? I mean, I, I mean <laughs> also, also, but I also mean um You're getting him riled up, Raven. Not only immortality in the transhumanist sense, but especially the proliferation of ontological capitalism. So the proliferation of the continuous assault of being by capital and by intelligence, which is inexorable, which is the which we are defeated already against it, it just has to appear. Um, after which, even the very processes through which we distinguish life and death up from down, it's without sky, man. It's without sky by a circle. It's the disappearance of a whole dimension of human existence. Um, and so I don't know if that was clear enough, but but it is that sort of abstract dissolution of the difference that I'm talking about. And without Sky Surkov talks about this in a metaphorical way, I think is very worthwhile because it posits it in the terms of war. I would posit it in the terms of capitalism, right? We live in attentionless capitalism. We'll live in ontological capitalism eventually because it will strike at the core of being once it's done mercantilizing all of our attention and all of our desires. Uh, so yeah, end of history again, or, but like end of humanity once and for all, the invasion from the outside fulfilled. Yeah, I think this, in, this invasion from the outside that's fulfilled is like the end of the, like in, in, um, <clears throat> In, in I think the core of Zizekian philosophy, there's this idea of one divides into two. So the one always has to be understood from the perspective of the two. Um, and that the question is, is there the possibility of the real other, which is not an other related to the one? Meaning like me as an individual, as a one, we're always trying to get to the other side where there be no one but is there the possibility for the real other? So for this invasion from the outside um, and, you know, for me, it's like the closest I've got to that is the psychedelic experience where my oneness dissolves and I'm just in the other. 
type of thing. But it, and, and it is, and it is some somehow the overcoming of life and death itself. You know, like it, 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 when I'm in the psychedelic experience, I'm not alive or dead. I would differentiate. You, you, you went through a death praxis and then you came back and you're still Cadell, but you did a thing as opposed yep. to the ability to conceptualize a thing being already assaulted. Uh, that's my speculation, at least I'm not, mm. but I think it's a worthwhile one, especially in, in like when Heidegger in the question of technology, he talks about this midnight hour at, after which technology inframes being totally inauthentically, but totally. He also says that that is the point, and this is where I cried. This is also the point where the salvific potential is all, is the greatest, the biggest. It's the midnight hour is is the moment of the most the fullest darkness after which something else can appear. And the Christian boy in me cried, but the point remains that I, I believe that that is the trend. Uh, you know, these these this this conceptual colonization continuously threading upon us it's so weird though because it's like i don't know it's there was this period of time i feel like in the kind of like through my lifetime i was born in 1995 where there was just this sense like that you you were just gonna go and you know go to school and like go and make a career or like whatever it's just like total banal just kind of like running the script type of future or go be a musician or whatever it is like whatever kind of thing you were going to do for your, for your kicks over the course of your life. And like, I feel like that concept is just caught, like almost entirely crumbled now. And COVID has definitely been an accelerant of that. Um, but when you really think about all the things that like are bearing down upon us and just like how defeated we are, like there's never been, I mean, at least it just feels so meaningful. It feels so meaningful to connect with people and to build these like dyads and build out the dyads into little networks, triads, and then, you know, trying to build these like geometries of form within this like formless kind of environment that attempts to impress and kind of consume us. And from that perspective, I just feel like we have the opportunity. This is like the saving power that lies within the danger, right? It's like, and this is where I, I go into the biology of like the body, the, the, the intuition of the body to find other bodies, other people, other subjects, and to bind with them, to bond and to create these membranes that are within the ocean. You know, it's like thinking of a of algae just kind of like beginning to clump together into these little like and, and moving within this like medium that's taking them away and taking them into the into the like total chaos of of the water but like we have no idea what's gonna happen like and there's something so thrilling and exciting about that um so it's like there is a sense of which there's no there is only death there's only death and when you embrace that there's this like vitalism that comes it's like, well, what do you have to lose? Uh, I don't know. It's like, uh, I find it, I find it, maybe it's like a great, like being kind of a crazy person, but I find it to be very exciting. What do you have to lose? Yeah. It's beautiful. I'm Absolutely. You have to include the absolute loss before you can live. I'm reminded of that. Sorry, pop culture reference. 300 scene where there's a dude who's scared and some dude tells another dude, what you think you're going to live forever. And he sells it. He says it so matter of factly, but like, it sounds so much like a joke. What you think you're going to live forever. Come on, let's die. Let's, let's kill these guys. And it just felt so, uh, 
Well, I don't know. There's some meaning in that. Yeah, well, it's like I was thinking when we were writing on that thread yesterday, Daniel, and you were talking about the king who needs absolute certainty in order to lead the tribe, right? And I was thinking the perspective of the person who thinks the king needs 100% certainty is the perspective of the person who has to follow the king. The person who has to follow the king wants to believe that the king knows what he's doing. In some sense, the king is the agent of necessity of fate. But I think the authentic stance of the king is, I have no fucking idea what's going to happen. But I have to maintain enough distance so that it looks like I'm an agent of necessity. And the one exception to that rule is when the king goes into battle, which is precisely why Leonidas and the Spartans are so fucking badass, because in going towards death and knowing they're going to be death, they actually act as agents of certainty. There's there's no such thing as try. There's only yes or no. There's no 50% yes. There's no such thing. The only certain yes is yes, I'm going to die. Yeah. And that's, uh, this is where I find, for example, like Cadell's email thread or email signature, which is like die again, die better, because it's like talking about symbolic death rather than real death. We each only get one real death, right? As long as technology isn't bringing us back from the dead. Once that happens, I think we're going to need a whole new class of philosophers. But (laughs) until then we're talking symbolic death, right? We're talking psychoanalytical death. We're talking negation of the ego concept that structures the symbolic reality. And this is where uh, our subcultural creativity is this is the fruit of ground it's like how do you produce a community that is actually it's telos is to regularly destroy the ego concept of the people who exist within it of course the difficulty there is that you'll probably reach a point where you destroy the very image that keeps them together but that's kind of okay i'm thinking of now like the swarm logic when people talk about how i think jordan hall once talked about how the internet era looks in its realization like video games, like World of Warcraft, where people spontaneously get together to complete a mission. They do the mission and then they disappear off again to do other missions with other people. And maybe that's what we're going to look like. Maybe we're hanging together in 2020s and then we're going to find some other bubbles. And then back in 2050, we'll be like, whoa, do you remember when we were kids and we used to do those podcasts? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wanted to go back to this because we're kind of we're talking about death, um, but I mean I think I think something weird for me personally is like there's just seems to be a an like a an attitude that death is already bad, right? Like we just kind of accept the idea that like death is something that we ought to annihilate. Like old people don't die of like natural causes; they die because they had a heart attack or they or some medical medicine didn't save them. You know, so there's this new context of which we view just like the act of people dying. Um, and it it really like, it kind of disturbs me to think about living in a, in a culture where like death is not accepted as part of a part of like what just happens. Like what you said, Daniel, like you think you're going to live forever? Like that's insane. Like that's, that's just delusional idea that people are just going to live forever. And I think that um, to move forward with that as being an underlying assumption of, of what humans are here to do. It's like, we're here to like um, extend human life forever so that no human ever has to die. It's like, well, what is that? I mean, what is that besides the embracing of the death drive? Like, what do you get when you just, when you just like live forever? You don't get any change. You don't get any difference. You don't get any variation between generations. It's, and, and that to me wants to hyper individualism. Like you live because your lineage lives. 
you you do live forever. Like my ancestors are living. Yeah, like, all of them, <laughs> all of them till the big bang all were successful. No, not They're one failed. Alive. Like the subject, we're like so attached to the specific subject that we think that that thing needs to extend itself perpetually throughout all existence. And to me, that is also a kind of like authoritarian or tyrannical view where it's like, I want to control the outcomes of reality so that my subject gets to be guaranteed the continuation of its existence. I think it's... I think it's the ego that wants to continue itself forever. I think the subject finds itself when the ego dies. Ah, okay. That's a good distinction. So it's the ego. I think so. I think the ego yeah, would just, like I think the ego will always stage a scene where it wins everything forever. Hmm. I think that's how, that's how my ego functions. I know my ego stages this all sorts of stupid scenes where I win forever. <laughs> <laughs> Forever, for the, for the forever and so the dying, victory. The dying that you speak of, like the dying in life, that is like the disillusion of the ego that you just like return to over and over and over again. Is that what that means? You you just you just get better and better at catching the way you you under like you get better and better at catching the way the ego is trying to constantly manipulate things towards your own narcissistic eternity. You know, and, and this, this inability of people to die and accept death is like, I mean, I came to this, obviously, I came to this through my own irrational social conflicts, where I realized that what people were doing was trying to either myself or the other person trying to get me to identify with some image of their ego, which which wanted to stay around forever and was like trying to solidify itself as this, this forever thing. Like, and, and I think that it's, it's, I don't know. I mean, one of the interesting things about Freud's formulation of the death drive is that he was very aware of what Richard Dawkins made popular in the selfish gene, that the gene line is immortal and the gene line is immortal. And then they, the gene line uses organisms to reproduce itself, but the gene line's already immortal. Whereas now you just have to understand that in the context of the symbolic order, because we're not just biological organisms. We're also symbolic, always filtering things through the symbolic and so forth. So, so this, so that's why the ego concept as this image, which finds itself in an impotent body, because we're born with an impotent body, the ego image is a defense against the impotent body. So that's why to find your, to find your truth, you have to accept. That's why I'm, that's my understanding to find your truth. You have to accept your lack. And that takes us back to like, for example, in the metaphor of the garden of Eden, where they cover up their, they cover up themselves immediately as soon as they get self self self-reflection. Mm -hmm. So you have to almost be standing naked and then when you're standing naked and I had that experience, um, I had that experience of like being the first perception, like being a naked perception, you know, um, and, 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 and standing in that. And, and then you can, then only then can only then do your symbols have value. Only then does your speech have value. 
because oh. you're because you're close to the original perception. I, the way that I interpret that original perception, or rather, the scaffolding. I mythologize the scaffolding that I create around the access to such an original perception. And not to elongate too much on that topic, but what speaks from beyond the lack? I wouldn't say that there's causality in there, but it is as if I'm talking about the hidden veil, the hidden hand behind the veil of history. It's literally what we keep repeating all the time, that lack is kind of the, the driving engine for stuff to happen. Um, lack, of, lack of something beneath you makes you fall. Lack of a future makes time move forward. Um, and so I, in, 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 this, in, the, in this idea that there's, there's a tree, there's, a, there's generations following each other through history, not only biologically, but even symbolically, that mimetic and genetic line being immortal um, cannot help but to postulate kind of a hidden parallel, uh, complementary, co-whatever-the-fuck lineage doing motion as well. Um, and yeah, that's that. So, so again, I come back to that, that idea of the veil of Isis, like uh, who the veil who no mortal has actually peered, uh, peered through because you actually have to die to peer through. Um, does this make sense? This, this, this co evolution between that, you're not sticking. Nick Land wrote like a really cool text just today about, about this very topic about the outside and whatever, but, but he's weird and he's got complexes with the outside. So he, so he thinks that it's like this horrible monster, which it may very well be, but I'm referring to the hidden hand that guides this driving forward, this, this, this inherent biological uh, optimism that Raven never sees, Raven never ceases to, to inspire. Seriously. It's like, some sort of continuation aided by hidden hands. There's a reason why all of these rituals and all of these symbologies of and scaffoldings created around kings and priests of all ages. Well, cap well capitalism, the metaphor of capitalism is the invisible hand, which is like the hidden hand. And in, in, in my paper on the commons, I like to use the notion of the metaphor of the invisible hand job because it's, <laughs> because it's, because it's, 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 because it's not, it's not just that this invisible hand is self-organized. So it's, it's a metaphor for the exchange value of capital because it's not just that the invisible hand is self-organizing to the benefit of all capitalist subjects, as Adam Smith hypothesized, that capitalism was going to lead us to utopia, but rather that the invisible hand job of capital's endless circulation of itself is jerking off on our faces all the time. <laughs> always already. It's always already <laughs> jerking. It's, it's always already jerking off on you. The Archon is wanking in our face. <laughs> yeah, man, it's, it's a hard one. Let me very quickly. That's the reason why I never make up my mind when I look at the symbology of the Gnostics and, and, the Enlightenment secret societies and all their symbology, because I'm a symbolical guy. Everywhere I, I look, when I look at these older traditions, I see references to this very reality that we're talking about 
hidden hands, hidden teleology at the end of history. Uh, you cannot see it with your real eyes. You have to sort of die, have a, have a death experience so that you can uh, actually have that cornerstone in your own arch. All of these are kind of metaphors embedded within rituals within, say, masonry and other societies. But then there's a part of me which is like, shit, this is just the Archon pulling our leg. And then I get Manichaean. So it's all very, like, I don't know which way to turn to, but I just wanted to, like, drop this in, that this is yet another layer that, um, that keeps fascinating me when it comes to teleology of history and its dialectics and the necessity of, of it moving forward and how it relates to biology and how it relates to the future. Well, is the hidden hand a way to mythologize the trauma of negativity? Yes, yes. Literally, by definition, because no one who's alive has died yet to tell us what's on the other side. So it's like we're all having question marks on our heads always. There must be something. Like my ego can't <clears throat> deal with the fact that there's well, there no, just like the ego can't deal with the fact that it is not itself. Even if it's nothing. Even, even if, if it needs the story that I'm an illusion, even that is an egoic story. That's the paradox of ego, right? Something like that. As long as you're within symbols, you're within the realm of ego. Because I think ego is just the way that the mind represents itself to itself. So as long as you're in representation. It's something like that. Yes. You have to be, you have to be in the symbolic, but rebelling against the symbolic at the same time. Cause you can't, you can't get out of the symbolic, but at the same time, you can't identify too much with the symbolic. Like there's extremes to both processes. There's a, like, and there's a lot of people who desire, for example, to develop a symbolic, which is totalizing, for example, like I have the complete symbolic and the opposite of people who want to get out of the symbolic and shut down language altogether. So there, you have to sort of use, to me, you have to cultivate a relationship to the symbolic, which is sort of understanding it's inherent incompletion. It's condition is incompletion. And at the same, and at the same time, if, if, if you're interacting in the real with it, there is the possibility for, something interesting to happen but you can't know ahead of time you ha you can't know ahead of time because if you if you if you pretend you know ahead of time you're cheating so let me introduce this notion that i discussed with todd mcgowan on hegel's teleology which i like a lot is hegel said with the with the emergence of telos in nature that nature hides from itself because the truth of nature is on the inside of the telos. You can't see it from the outside and it's even hidden from the organism itself um, because the end is present in the beginning. So for example, my favorite of this is like with romantic relationships that you only find out the truth in, in low levels of romantic relationships. So you only find out the truth of the relationship at the end when it all falls apart, then all the true speech comes out, you know, like when it ends, but Hegel's point is that the end is present already at the beginning, but you can't know about it until the end. If that makes sense. Pure hyperstition. That's what we were talking about at the start. Something that exists in the future, but only creates itself from the, the unfoldings in the present. There, Yeah. While you were speaking about the mediation of the exchange between 
between the self and the self, between the self and its desire and its lack and all of that. Uh, I could only think of money as the ultimate religious object because it's the absolutely stone. It's remarkable. And like as an innovation, it, it kind of displaced God. And not only in that uh, sort of cheap everyday sense that, that people talk about usually, but like literally uh, as a religious object of, of I mean, meaning. Let me, I want to, I want to let you continue, but just because what you're saying is so important is uh, Giorgio Agamben said, God did not die. It was turned into money. And Marx's and Marx's notion of com- of commodity fetishism is that the commodity fetish functions as a sacred object in capital. Okay. Okay. Let me riff on that. So, fetish is a word that comes from the French fetish, which comes from Portuguese feitiço, which is what you know explorers of the coast of Guinea in the 1500s they discovered voodoo dolls. To, for the lack of a better term. And uh, they call them fetisus or, or spells, which were these dead bodies rendered living by being charged with super, su, su, superstitional charge. Maybe that's how you say it. And, and by being charged with this charge of belief by those who believed in it. Yeah. Commodity fetishism, obviously, is the idea that goods are charged with, uh, with those very properties of being enchanted. So beyond, while you know, Bruno Latour talks about the great barrier, the great division, that before the world was enchanted and was animistic and the, the leaves would speak and you could hear the wind if it's going to rain tomorrow or some shit, and then that ceased because um, the world became in- sort of disenchanted, rational, 20th century, positivistic, modernist, humanist, uh, everything like that. But the power of animism got attributed and concentrated into the monotheism of money, which ever intensified the previous monotheism in that it abstracted everything so much into this symbolic currency, as well as deployed into the commodity. Now, it is not only the commodity that is fetishized that has this bell power, but it is also the image, which is what the board talks about in the, in the spectacle. It's autonomous images. It's not only shoes, it's the image of the shoe. It's the image of Kanye wearing the shoe. It's, it's, it's what Kanye does that I got to do because he wears a shoe. So all of this network of images, libidinally charged images that is fetishized, which brings us to the French word phantasme. Phantasme is a you know, sexual fantasy. How do you say this in French? Fantasme, as far as I can, I can tell. Fantasme also means ghost, phantasmatic. So you can already see sort of a haunting, uh, haunting level of the spectacle of capitalism. It feels that, to take your point and to drive it to my own ends, that the, 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 the guerrilla warfare to fight here is uh, the reattribution of belief in a schizoanalytic way, in a creative way, in a way that somehow rests from the monotheism of commodity fetishism, some of that enchantment, some of that animistic potential, and puts it in the hands and the tip of the pen of some someone who likes to design ontologically, something like that. We have a need of the sacred. It's here. It's here. It's a, we're not in control of it. Even death, yeah. Raven. Like it's the priest. It used to be the priests in white, and then modern modernity came, and death continued to be mediated by priests in white doctors. So, but go on. 
Yeah, the thing I, I, is so bizarre to me. I think maybe this is this is most prevalent within like romantic life that you can kind of see this story, but um, film and like all of these uh, mediums of our, our contemporary kind of world create this way in which we are primed to certain types of events in our life. Like there's a kind of uh, enchantment to, you know, going to a specific kind of place with a specific kind of person or like seeing something happen, a coincidence. Like there's totally enchantment that is happening within people's lives. But to me, it's like, it's so weird because it almost comes with like a movie soundtrack. It, it comes with like notions of how the plot should, should move. Uh, it, it, it tells you like what your feelings towards somebody should be. And so there's a kind there's this like, you know, these strange loops. That's, that's a theme that is coming up in this conversation that time as a loop is this thing that is both like moving kind of linearly, progressively, but also moving back. So there's this, you know, the double dryer kind of conception of, of, of time. Um, but then there's also this sense of mediums. So we get exposed to stories, ideas, symbols, or just the ontology of our world that the mother looks to, that gives value, and the child then perceives as being that which is important. What the classmates look at and determine is important that you bring and connect to in your body um, and then bring, get attached to. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to see how, you know, even people who maybe like try and unshackle themselves from the memes of like capitalism still have an attachment to things like the Lion King or, or 300 or any of these things, you know, because they're so there's, I mean, it's a pagan kind of idolatry, it, it, but it's like very intimate for people because it does form and bring enchantment into their lives. So I don't know. I'll just throw it up there. I don't know. hundred percent. It's always, always recuperated, right? The hooks of capital are already like deep within your networks. They have been designed by capital. There's no way you can escape that. Uh, that's and. But there's a way to look at what Woody Allen does as, as the archetype of a dude who is able to invent these, these fantasies. He attributes, he, he's masterful or good at, at attributing this emotional symbolic charge that originally comes from the heart and the libido and putting it into objects, into scenes, into songs, into these mythographies that somehow perhaps in the right time and place, given the right technical and cultural conditions, people can create. And then create something that people can believe in and, and that has a nice impact on people. And that's perhaps why, you know, some art lasts long and some art doesn't because it speaks to something deeper. But then I just wanted to mention something else, which is uh, Rem Kulas, my favorite architect of all time and theorist of architecture. He speaks about the paranoid critical method, which is schedule analysis, but more refined technically and applied to architecture, which is nothing but the attribution of belief and symbolic value and meaning to seemingly irrelevant things of daily life and their juxtaposition so as to generate new spaces between them, new lacks and new potentialities. Now in architecture, this was, this, this was raging in the nineties and up until the mid two thousands, then the, but as a theoretical concept, it, I think it's, it's extremely useful. It's the method of the surrealists and Dali and all that. It's also what's, 
uh, Deleuze talks about with schedule analysis as a way to continually produce yourself, uh, not only yourself, but also these schematics for desiring, which is what is constituted in these films. And, you know, to paraphrase Deleuze, how does one res escape uh, continual recuperation from the inexorable, uh, never, no, inescapable market? The resistor creates, creates, creates. There's nothing else. It's, it's, it's what you do. Uh, which, to be honest, can be charged with a heroic biological charge. And should. Even when we forget our names, and we will forget our histories and we will forget everything else. Like there's something still in there somehow. Yeah, I mean, I, I think some of the stuff that uh, I think about is like things in tension. So there's, there's a lot of purity ideas like, okay, we need to like get rid of all symbolism and just return to the body and reject everything that's been tainted by the like the mind or there's like oh we have to reject the body completely and we just need to like go to this pure realm which is like the symbolic and i think that that is a drive towards eliminating this tension that is just actually the ontology of life that's actually the ground the ground is tension and basically having to kind of maintain the state of suspended animation between things that exist from, I mean, an ego perspective in a paradoxical state. And the idea that we have to like flush ourselves completely of the touch of capitalism to me has the similar type of vibe where it's like, okay, well, you know, really? Do we really need to do that? Is that really the goal? Or is it rather to live in tension with the impurity of our existence and the fact that this thing is emerging? And we actually don't know what it is, but if it's intelligence, then there's something much more uncanny going on than it just being some kind of like economic driver, you know, that's merely just sucking human beings into its into its body. It's uh, And to, to see it as something possibly more of an opening than a closing uh, and then the other thing is uh, thinking about like ontological design. I, I feel like that's a way of taking the the tools and the capacities of the the tainted world and and bringing them into that creative impulse uh, of the biological uh, of of the dissolution of the sub you know the ego to reveal the subject and and to create worlds and not worlds that are going to save everyone. I mean, I think that's the other thing that no. people get locked down in. It's like, we're not trying to save everybody. Like, we're trying to make our, through this, like, emergence of, from the from the singular to the dyad to the kind of growth of these, these communities within the sphere, within the membrane, we're producing our own little world. And there's, giving up that abstract notion that everybody's going to come along with us, I think, is one of those kind of first things that you have to, like, get off of you about the over-socialization of this like kind of well, liberalism. It reminds me of what Cadell said about the impotent body, right? The ego loves this idea that it can love everybody and save everybody. But the body is pretty incapable of that, which is just what shines through. Again, it's like, like to talk about polyamorous love affairs. Like it's this nice ideal that everyone could just fuck everybody and have relationships, but also fuck everybody. But then the reality of that is 
jealousy and envy unless you're seriously fucking mature and or skilled in practicing tantra or extremely disassociated from your reality <laughs> well precisely it's like we have these these bodies that have <laughs> limitations to to take on that stance of <laughs> i love everybody is fucking hard that's why there's a whole world religion out of it the whole idea that christianity was supposed to be the religion of love and literally loving the stranger and how much blood has been shedded in the name of christianity mm, because it was necessary it was a sacrifice that was necessary for god uh, it was mythologized as part of that life itself you know the gazelle needs to die for the lion and the, to eat and for the cycle of life to continue so can so do we need to die um under the cross of capitalism and perhaps go through it to rediscover what's the uncanny thing wanting to be expressed through the morphogenetic potential of our consciousness first and then being initially through prime matters then in the first stage of capitalism and the second stage of capitalism through you know goods and selling services and then in the third stage of capitalism through attention these are the prime matters that have a morphogenetic potential that are the vessels for intelligence to come into and shape because intelligence has no form it's slack but you throw you you throw like clothes on top of it and you see its shape right it's like you can know my hand isn't here because you can distinguish the outlines via negativa and uh so so are we so are we in relation to perhaps ego um and we are ourselves perhaps very uncanny phenomena as well that we're unaware of Yeah. Maybe the truth of it is the friends that we made along the way. <laughs> anyway. You going to jump was... into that? Um, well, I'm just I'm I'm just I'm just I'm just I'm just thinking. Um I mean, one of the one of the ideas that 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 did come to me that I I I wanted to expand on is is again going deeper into this, you know, maybe just to situate myself in what Raven was saying about the ontology is the tension, and to keep the to keep the symbolic constantly um, renovating itself, like through like through your awareness. Like you have to keep be you have to be aware of the signifiers you're using, the stories you're telling, and how how you're basically perceiving the present moment. Um, and I think that in this, like, there's the you know, like, take for example the way in which we, you know, it's kind of like Alain de Baton said that if we didn't read stories about love, we wouldn't love. Like that it's like that the, we love, we love, we love kind of through on the first order. We love kind of through the stories we've read about love or like, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the way in which we've been told to love. And I think that there's, there's a point at which that becomes empty because you've already done that. You've already lived that you've already, you've sort of acted out that story. You don't want to act out the same story over again. You've, 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 you've acted out that script, but you can't, you can't just have a love with no script or you can't just have a love with no words. 
or you can't just have a love with no symbolic. So you have to, in, as it were, sort of find the find the the stories of the real, or let the real guide the stories, kind of thing, and 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 let 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 be conscious enough to 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 create new love stories. Like there there was a, there was a there was a, a point in time when we didn't tell love stories. And there was a point in time where you have a story like, like Romeo and Juliet or whatever the famous love stories are, you know, and those love stories were created from an original reel. And it, it's, it's like, what, what new stories will our, I don't know, fidelity to the reel or the fidelity to our meeting generate? they appear when the real requires them to appear or when the materiality of our being and consciousness so requires them to appear. So in a talk that we had recently with Miguel Angel, Angel Fernandez, which we should, should upload soon, he spoke about the ancient craft of, of the stonemasons um, who would be going around Europe and building cathedrals in the sort of 1500s. And that there would be sort of a knowledge of the material, like they would like, you know, grab the, the, the nail and they would have the hammer and they would like guide the stone building in a way that was in accordance with the material. The material does guides. Um, so too is it with the stories. They appear when throughout the development of civilization, they're required to appear. And so too do the symbols that we continually recycle shh, appear insofar as they're required by the ontology and that ontology today is tension. So it's really like we're going to have to create these stories at scale, at speed and with meaning, but this, we're just kind of mediators. We're just figuring out what the material is saying and then doing our part. Like I think about mimicking in the context of this conversation, it's like, say take love how do i love how do i enter into a love relationship with a partner well the first thing i can do is look at what other people in my tribe or in my society do when they're in love relationships but then we can abstract and create the virtuality of love and create a story it's like what is the optimum way that a love relationship happens or what is the optimum expression of the tragedy of the love story but then I think there's there's the shift that happens when you either get tired or just simply can no longer function in the sphere of mimicking any longer. Like another example of this, that I, I always think in terms of music metaphors, because I think that was my first competency. It's like to learn to play a musical instrument, you first have to mimic the works of other people. You learn how to put your fingers in place. You learn the scale patterns. You learn other people's songs. And then they're kind of, comes a transition point where what you've learned is no longer what you're trying to do, but it's like the building blocks upon which you, you express what you're trying to do elsewhere. Similarly with learning a language, right? First you have to learn the grammar and the vocabulary, and only then can you begin to construct your, your reality and express your reality and expressing and constructing are kind of two sides of the same coin. So you need that core fluency. And maybe that's where the kind of mimicking and like in the love relationship, you you mimic the story so you have a sense of what you're doing, but then 
the problem of that is that there's an ideal and you're always going to be falling short of the ideal because the real and the symbolic don't totally match up. But then if there can be a shift or where the kind of the story becomes, um, it is, it, it's just a tool in the process of unfolding something more. And again, this is, this is subcultural creativity, right? It's how do we use the raw material, the virtualities and actualities of life up to this point to do new things. Yeah, I, I also want to bring up that we're using romantic stories as an example. And I think uh, one of the things that I got out of reading Sexual Personae uh, was that Poglia is basically charting a transition in Western narrative that used to have much, much like much more of a presence of stories of like politics, of kings, of warriors, of, of men who would go out and uh, take on the world or build things to basically it kind of narrowing and uh, replicating romantic narratives at lyrical narratives over and over and over again. And how that changed the view of women. Uh, because often when women were brought into these stories, they were masculinized. Uh, so you have a character like um, Rosalind in, in Shakespeare who dresses up as a man. She goes about as a man. Women fall in love with her. She falls in love with her men. And then at the end, you know, she, she returns to being a woman and there's a marriage. Uh, Cleopatra also is um, kind of cast as in her book as being an androgen character who has a lot of masculine characteristics. And she, she begins to kind of build this lineage where uh, Western storytelling really begins to emphasize these relationships between men and women and kind of it's like a king layer, who cares? Like, whatever, like what's going on with the kings like becomes way less and less important. And you can kind of see that in, in our culture as well, that there's this emphasis on romance. And it's not even just the you know, the marriage itself, it's, it's actually just that period of time of infatuation before there's any kind of consummation of, of the marriage and the real kind of brutal life of raising children and bringing forth the future. And so when thinking about the creation of these stories or symbolic worlds, I think it's interesting to think about reviving the stories of kings or uh, the stories of adults who go off and actually take on responsibility and sacrifice themselves for the sake of others or for the sake of some sort of greater goal or future um, that's not sensationalized in this kind of like romanticized Hollywood way, but actually speaks to a story that we could all use as a source of, you know, mimicry and inspiration as we move forward into our own futures and kind of cast off romanticism. It's like, it's kind of what I'm seeing in the men's movement uh, with you guys. It's like, no, we need to get together with other men <laughs> and we need to figure out who we are over here. And of course we're still gonna interface with women, but we also need our own sense of what it is to, to be in communion with other men. And I think women also need the same and we're still trying to figure out how to build those worlds together. So what are the stories within those groups? What are the stories of the women? What are the stories of the men? And how can we actually take on our responsibility within the context of, of the tribe so that the future can come because we're responsible for bringing it forth. I think that's, I think that's, I think that's what I'm trying to say with thinking new stories for how we love. It's like, we need the story of, 
we need the story of what the European men's movement's calling the desexualized spaces movement. Like where you have tribes of men building, building community and hopefully you have tribes of women building community and we have a, 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 a relationship with each other. What does that relationship look like? How, how are we reproducing? We do need a story. We need a story for how, like, because to me the big problem is like the nuclear family story is just so simple that it, it, it people just fall right into it without thinking, you know, and it, and it, it, that, that, that's both its power and its danger because it's such a, it's such a, it's such a, in some sense, it's such a, like an intuitive story you could just fall into, you know, one man, one woman, get a house, have a white picket fence, have a dog, have a kid. That's a very simple story. Everyone can think that story pretty easily. But at the same time, the actual lived reality of the story is insane. So like, for example, I keep telling the guys in the men's circle with that, that Owen and I attend is, imagine if we told hunter-gatherer people that what we did with our technological civilization was that we took one adult male, one adult female, we put them in the same house for decades, and we just thought they'd get along fine. Like, hunter-gatherers would be like, what? You took one adult male and one adult female and you put them in the same house for decades? That sounds insane. Like, so, so, the, the, so what is the story of the tribe? What is the story of our communion with each other that actually is real? Because the, I don't think we can have one overarching story for it, it but we have to like construct the story from our, Ultimately, our, ultimately, it has to be, in this situation, fidelity to the event of the IDW or fidelity to the event of whatever it is our group is. And, 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 and because otherwise, otherwise, it's just some virtual formation which rises and falls and it's actually very fragile. Like, we should be aware of how fragile it is in order to get, in order to become real I mean, it would have to have a whole other sort of transition period. Let me, let me jump in on that. <clears throat> I don't think, well, I agree broadly with what you said. That we need another story is not the right formulation in my view. That it is fragile, I don't agree with that either. I think rather than that, for example, there was a transition, Raven, you were saying, in the pilot speaks about when there was the stories of kings and of war and of ventures. That transitioned into a lot of stories about romantic relationships and all that lyricism. I feel that that kind of maps and floats along with the domestication of the environment. So while the environment was really harsh, you need the, the moments of peak uh, uh, affective intensity were not lived at home or in love. It, they were lived at war and in conquest. Then as the environment becomes really domesticated, all of a sudden, the peak of effective intensity of a life is that. It is not Homer, uh, Odysseus, um, at least going out and, and, and doing his mission. Rather, it's lived in this glamorized, perhaps even infantilized way in La La Land. Um, so to add to your point, do we need stories? That's perhaps the wrong question. What we need is 
we don't need the the material of of what's already happening out there already dictates what it's going to be. The environment dictated Homer and the domesticated city life dictated the love story. And so the internet age and and accelerationism and defeat will dictate that the story is about being able to achieve high. It's going to be about high effective intensity as well, or rather high speed of, of some sort of, you know, cognition of being is rather intensification of whatever being is and singing the new love song for the internet age, which is not necessarily a love song between men and women for the creation of a family and the reproduction of a nation state. Rather, it's a story for question mark, for horror, for abstract horror, for the internet, for, uh, you know, for that which does not escape the near future. And I think that there's something, and that's, I guess, what we're all talking about here. So the material of out of which we tell these stories already presupposes how it's going to be told and it will do its job. I'll tell you something that I find myself thinking about, which is not just what are the stories, but how are the stories told? It's like we had oral transmission, then we had writing and novels, we had movies, then we had television things, and Netflix is kind of the, the highest realization of storytelling. I mean, there's also theater, but there's no reason to believe that TV or film or theater as it currently exists will be the way that stories continue. And so I'm like, what is the new permutation of story? Is it like a script gets written and then we all get together and act out the script over a weekend together? So we kind of become actors in our own story, but in an ironic way. And like, we even do things like stage fights and love scenes with each other where it happens, but it's also at an ironic distance where we're like ever more present in the stories of ourselves and our own being. It's going to be something like that. I think what you're doing is, is a really like nice juxtaposition of the functions that that story will fulfill, right? It's going to touch upon all these different functions of, of drama, of comedy, of love within us. Um, but it's like, you know how in the 1910s people made these speculative sci-fi scenarios about how 2020 is going to look like? They looked, they were, you know, imagining 2020 in the language of 1910. The, their flying cars were like horses with wings or some shit. It was just really bad. Uh, speaking of horses with wings, this even reminds me of ancient Greek history. But that said, it's also what we're doing right now, right? This, this, these new mediums, these new media spaces, these new media beings that we will eventually be constituted by, uh, they're going to constitute a new challenge. And one of those challenges is going to be an existential one, like we were, like I was mentioning a while ago, because in that story, kind of the peak, maybe the peak narrative, the chief, you know, there was the Greek and Greece, it was a tragedy. And then the 21st century, the peak narrative is going to be the, distinction between life and death being itself something ontological in that regard uh, let me know if i'm being too abstract does this make sense you're always being abstract bro anyway <laughs> then i'm stretching too far that's why we love you I mean, I think, I think the story, I think the stories will, I don't think we need one story or something. I think the stories will emerge from the real. I think that the, 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 the stories and the symbolic is subservient to the real um, and, and wow. so forth. Um, but I do, but I do think that we, we need, we need story, even if the story is something radically that we, we, 
you know, like look at, for example, reality TV, like where people turn themselves, they, people, people become their own story, like a Paris Hilton or a Kim Kardashian or whatever. They, they, they just, they just, they are the, they are the story, you know, like they are the, just their life is the story. Like, and like reality TV as a medium has consumed entertainment in the way we watch TV and, and the way, you know, people binge watch Netflix and stuff like that. So it's like, you know, I don't, I don't know, you know, I guess what I was, what I was thinking was like, is that this, you know, whatever's happening with the movements we're associated with, it, it is going to have to gain a, a depth of the real that it doesn't have now. And, and, and the, the, the things we're saying now aren't the stories that will sustain that other transition. It'll have to be a different type of storytelling. It'll have, and it, and it will have, it will have to be, it will have to be dealing like very, in some ways, concretely with, with, with our, with our day-to-day lives, how, how we're, how we're living the, the, you know, the, the modes of income, the ways of sexually relating and, and, and stuff like that. And I was just using the example of the nuclear family as this kind of story which subsumed an entire generation and generations of people into a certain way of living. And the reason it did that was because it was so simple. It was so easy to be replicated. Um, but it seems like what we point towards is higher order of that social relating. It's not as simple as that. It's not as simple as the nuclear family story. It has a different order structure. Uh, are you saying collective? Like the, like I give the example of the, 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 I'm giving the example of the desexualized spaces movement where you have more this notion of communing in tribe. Hmm. And I could imagine, I could imagine, for example, uh, uh, um, men's tribe and women's tribe, which have multiple locations, perhaps. It's very, it's not like this very clear boundaries of who's in and out in terms of the community as a whole. But, and then also there's some sort of, intersexual communing as well you know which we don't even know how to conceptualize probably but like there's there's this way in which we started the conversation talking about capitalism its omnipresence its transition from the industrial world to the digital informational world how that involves some sort of qualitative transition towards a more a different type of sociality a different modality of desire. Mm. Um, and I, and I, and I do think that whatever it is that we're, we're calling forth in the lack of our present moment is something of a higher order communing, a, a, a deeper, a deeper sense of, 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 of relation. Like, cause you know, I think that we're living in a very individualized atomized culture, but at the same time, you know, we are using our attention above and beyond capital. We're using our attention to forge relations, which are aware of dimensions of our being, which people who start nuclear families don't talk about. So that opens up the possibility for a new type of human. So like I was talking about with Todd McGowan yesterday, how when you understand the limits of reason and you're still positive about reason, 
in its limitation and you're able to think about contradiction instead of perfection, that that in some sense makes a different type of human that can withstand tragedy of social relation in a different way. Because the people who are just interacting with a perfect image of each other, their relation falls apart as soon as the perfect image drops. But if you're interacting with such a way that you're interacting with contradiction, you're interacting with paradox, where, like as Raven beautifully says, the thing that you think it is is different when you approach it. It's like the thing, like it, reality is not as it appears. It's contradictory. It's paradoxical. Like in 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 the in the in the flirtation stage, what what you think someone is, the more you get to know them, it changes, and so forth. That if beings who are aware of this play of image can can be can can create much more interesting social dramas what i always say let's not reproduce the old social dramas we know what the old social dramas are the you know i don't want to do that again let's have new more interesting social dramas what are those social dramas i don't know the complete story of it i just see there is a higher order to it. There's a more, there's more play of identities that are possible. This is where like the BDSM world within sexuality is so interesting, which as far as I can tell, it's like, it's boomed massively, probably in part because porn has exposed people to it. But what happens in BDSM, you create new dramas within a sexual relationship. You play out submission, dominance, roles, oh, different no. toys, different... Yeah, different <laughs> different ways of structuring the wheel of your desire to each other. And I think it's like if there's a way to expand that that play outward, that play of image outwards into more of life where, say, bourgeois capitalist society, it's all structured around this image of the professional ego. And what do you do? You have perhaps your private life of home, but the moment you leave your house, you've got your suit and your tie on or your business dress on, and then you go out and you're, you're professional. You have a job. And, you know, when you go to parties, one of the first things people ask you is, what do you do? I think that's one of the, like, real telltale signs that you're within a kind of uh, the bourgeois atmosphere. What do you do? What is the image that I can relate to you as? And if we can find a way to, <laughs> it's not like get rid of these images, I don't think, but be playful with them. It's like, oh, today I'm your daddy, bitch. I think that from out of the proliferation of all these modes of being, they will go into a bottleneck and yes, a few will constitute the modes of being that will make it past. Few of them will because most of them is trial and error. And most of them is, uh, you know, evolution is expensive. It's the accursed share of Bataille is the idea that, you know, there's a fuckload of sunlight. Only a little bit reaches the, the earth out of that fuckload of sunlight that reaches the earth. You know, only a little bit actually does, whatever. So, so nature expends a lot and it wastes a lot of energy to produce that one thing. That one thing, incidentally, retrospectively has an unbroken chain of relationship uh, towards the, the beginning of the Big Bang. But looking forward, uh, while I agree with what you said, there will be a bottleneck. And the, re the way to choose what out of this bottleneck is going to be perhaps the most relevant uh that's an that's an answer a question but better left unanswered i guess
I've just said in the chat, yeah, I've got to wrap it in, uh, yeah. in 10 minutes. How does that sound let's, to you? Let's maybe, let's maybe try and work towards sort of a conclusion of what we, what we tried to achieve in this conversation. I think the main things are like this mega transition involving, you know, the industrial and the informational and the capital, where does capitalism situate here and what does our social life look like and what are the stories we tell about our social lives and, and, and things like this. I mean, I mean, I think, I, I think that um, we should never under, in my view, we should never underestimate, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the fragility of social relationships, really. Um, how, how quickly they can, can emerge and, and fall away um, and what that means for the types of sort of images basically we're interacting with now um, because in the actuality of the communities themselves, there's, there is going to be a lot of anxiety. There is going to be a lot of, of, of competition. There's going to be a lot of surprise and unexpected things, you know, like just at the manifesto leader conference, you know, during it and after, like, I mean, there are, that's, a, that's a lot of male energy that we're, that, 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 that's there. Like that, that's, that's extremely chaotic. Like that, that energy, like sort of like with, with consciousness liberated from, you know, sort of a certain preconceived notion of identity, you know, and, and, and just wanting to explore, you know, that's a, that's, that's, that's a lot of energy right there. That's a, that's a, that's a big, it's a big phenomenon we're dealing with. You know, that's why I'm not so fast to <clears throat> fully dismiss the wheel and what, sometimes works. There are perhaps few modes that have, you know, not all of them, and obviously we know how they're positioned power-wise, but there are lessons from not the last five centuries, not the last 10 millennia, but perhaps uh, biology that are quite, you know, it's, it's, they structure the real in ways more deep <clears throat> than we care to understand. And so while the internet does rage on and reinvents so much of that. Um, there's something back there. There's something in us as well that speaks and determines and conditions that which we are in a way that's inescapable. In the same way that my hand has five fingers, my mind and my body have an anatomy of it as well, a behavioral anatomy, preconceived patterns. And so those are also worthwhile considering when, not considering, they will make themselves considered uh, but just just felt like you know there's also that. I'll be thinking about this idea of biological optimism. <laughs> the golden string. The golden string, the golden thread that we're just braiding into the future. I mean, I've never I've never heard it characterized in that way, and I think that's brilliant because often bio and I don't want to go off because we don't have that much time, but often biology is, is placed as a kind of determinism, as a kind of limit, as a kind of oppressive force. So the idea of it being an optimistic thing is, is really quite beautiful and interesting. I think the other thing about that is what is it to bring a bunch of people who understand the tension and the real, the, the difficulty of the complexity of being the necessity for the ego to be continuously annihilated, the like omnipotent presence of the outside kind of 
its fangs coming in and piercing into our membrane. Um, what, what is it to bring a bunch of people together who all know those things? What are they going to make? What is the and, and then the question of the dark renaissance. What emerges uh, when these people come together and make things uh, and have these elaborate social dramas that Cadell is pointing to? Um, so that's the question that hangs with me uh, is, is, is what could happen? I think... I think the two. I think the two dominant drives in our in our minds and bodies is is for is basically for for safety and adventure. And and I think on the one hand, like when I think about the desexualized spaces movement, it's like to have a space where the sexes can feel safe and to feel like they can sort of be with what they are, you know, masculine energy or feminine energy to not feel like you're just alone and at the same time to provide a to provide a field of community support that's intergenerational where you can explore an adventure with the other sex not in a not in a polyamorous just open-ended we all just having sex with everyone else but in a way that is sort of actually um authentically playful and and really you know open to um, the possibilities between, between men and women, not in like a, not in a sort of, um, I don't know, exploitative way, if that makes sense. But that's like, what's coming. That's what's, that's, what's coming to my, to my mind is like, we need, we need to have community, I think, to sort of, and, and in order to do that, we have to, we have to understand that our reason's limited. Like it's like, that's like the precondition. Like that to me is like the, the enlightenment thought that reason could do everything. The understanding that reason is limited is the, is, is basically the negativity. You have to let the darkness in your, your light of reason isn't going to cover the whole field. And then through that self limitation, new dramas are possible, which are more real, but we have to take care of like what, what Frege is saying is going to take care of us anyway. You know, like, and, and let, and like, and, and that is that there are drives in me that if they feel threatened are going to recoil strongly. And there are drives in me that really want deeply. So how do we, how do we build the community that can be aware of that intelligence, aware of our capacity to recoil into a hurt little, little, little infant and the intelligence in us that wants to go out and explore something new and really desires not because it has a Nike swoop on it, but because I'm in touch with what I am. Fuck yes. Oh yeah, baby. <laughs> Stand aside, old men, the young guns are, guns are here. See, and I'm, I'm, I'm already, I'm already on the other side of 30. You guys are, you guys are going to have a lot of fun. <laughs> i'm not that i'm not that old but i do feel different than when i was 25 <laughs> guys should we wrap it you you it's, it's 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 your it's your show i want you guys you guys wrap it up yeah you wrap it we're gonna wrap it daniel you got anything to say this has been badass it was That's a good right. night i hope everyone enjoyed i hope you all go uh out there and let the tribe build itself through you, through your wants, through your desires and needs. How cute and flowery. That's not like you. 
Chrysalis. <laughs> <laughs> There's an alien other invading us from the other side. We're all going to be eaten by it. That's me promoting yeah, my own. Who's the king that's going to be executed? That's the question. I think who's what? <laughs> yeah, we have to be aware of the desire of the, 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 the desire for for our, our killing and our sex drive is like the real, like those, those and killing metaphorically, of course, but also of course. literally. Of course, metaphorically. But also, also literally, could, could also be literally. <laughs> All right, guys, that's it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good night, my friends. Right, we've stopped recording. Consider becoming our patron and helping us put out more content like this. Patreon.com forward slash techno social.